Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I am not Bill Burnett. I am Andrew Keane. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, happy Friday. It is uh, October the 29th, the Friday. It's a, a bright, beautiful morning, as always, in San Francisco. I have to admit, I've always hated that phrase, happy Friday, because it implies that we hate our jobs. And I actually very happy with my job, although I don't really have one. And I tend to do my most productive work at the weekend. So Fridays for me are a gateway to my real work life. But for many people, Fridays are happy days because they don't like their jobs. Uh, the headlines these days are all about people leaving their jobs. Two headlines I picked up today uh, from Time. Uh, young people are leaving their jobs in record numbers and not going back from the USA Today. Great resignation sets off vicious cycle as more people quit. Uh, more and more people then are indeed quitting and it's bound up with the with the end, perhaps, or the beginning of the end of the pandemic, uh, NPR suggests that millions of workers are saying, I quit, and essentially doing away with Friday, because every day becomes Friday if you quit. Um, the question, of course, Motley Fall asks, is why are people quitting their jobs? Because after all, we need our jobs, I guess, to survive, to pay our bills. Um, many other websites are asking the same question. Why are so many Americans quitting their jobs? One answer, according to the Post, um, in a business perspective recently, is that um, workers are quitting their jobs in this so-called great resignation because they feel micromanaged, whatever that means, and disrespected, an even more amorphous term. So why are people quitting? What's gone wrong with our work life? My guest today is an expert on work and our work life and how to reinvent it. He is the co-author of a new book, Designing Your New Work Life. Uh, and like me, he's in San Francisco. I don't know how he feels about Fridays. Perhaps we might ask him. His um, name is Bill Burnett, and uh, he's a longtime Stanford professor and best-selling writer. Uh, Bill, happy yeah. Friday. What are Fridays for you? Are they good or bad days? Well, you know, Fridays are great because you've got a weekend coming up. But but like you, um, I've always loved my jobs. I've had lots of different jobs. I worked at Apple for seven years. I did a couple of startups. I've been in, I had my own consulting firm. Now, you know, I'm, I'm working at Stanford. Um, I've always enjoyed my job. But um, the, the data on job satisfaction is pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. So, so let, let's ask the W question, uh, Bill. Why? You've written this new book, Designing yeah. Your New Work Life. It's actually a sort of um, a follow-up to uh, your best-selling book, Designing Your Work Life. Other people will know you from another best-selling book, Designing Your Life. You've co-authored all these um, with uh, Dave Evans, another academic from, from Stanford. Why are people quitting their jobs, Bill, at the moment? Well, people, are, I mean, this, this was totally predictable. Um, two things happened during the pandemic. Everybody had to, you know, figure out how to work from home. And that meant all the managers who like to supervise people couldn't do that anymore. 
right? This whole, you know, people talk about theory X, theory Y management, but basically only about 3% of the workforce had flex time and was working from home before the pandemic. And after the pandemic hit, everybody went home and worked. And then guess what? It turned out people did a good job. In fact, productivity went up and people learned, uh, and the managers learned that they could trust folks to get their job done. The reason they weren't letting people work from home before, you know, the dirty little secret was they just didn't trust them. And then what happened is when people turned out to be trustworthy and they enjoyed some of the, you know, some of the freedoms of working from home, like, you know, if the FedEx guy comes, I can get my package. I don't get that little tag on the door and I can uh, drop my kids at the soccer game and I can, you know, some of they fold laundry during the staff, staff meetings because staff meetings are boring. Anyway, people learned they could be trustworthy and they, and they did a great job. And then they realized, wait a minute, I've never really been happy or engaged in this job. And now that I realize I am a trustworthy employee, I can get stuff done. I don't need this crappy job. And we've known for years, Gallup has done a survey every year for the last 15 or 20 years. And it demonstrates, you know, and, and consistently right now, 69% of US workers are disengaged or actively disengaged in their job. They get to Friday and they go, oh, great, you know, job's over or Monday morning. They're like, oh crap, I got to go to work. We've known they're disengaged and we've done nothing about it. And then the pandemic hit and they all learned they could be trusted and they all demand to be trusted. And companies like Apple, who, <laughs> Apple, which I, where I work at, I really respect the company. They did a survey of their employees and something like 65, 68% of the employees said, yeah, we'd like some kind of flex time, you know, three, two, maybe and come in the office a couple times a week. And then they announced, hey, everybody's coming back to the office. And 3,000, over 3,000 employees signed an open letter to Tim Cook saying, no, you didn't get the memo. First of all, don't survey us and ask us for our our um, opinion and then ignore it. And second, we're not all coming back to the office because we like this flexible work. And you can't micromanage us this way. You can only manage us to results. And so we, we feel like we're trusted and respected and we're not going back to the old way. And that's why people are quitting. We want to bail your book here. The subtitle is How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness and a New Freedom at Work. So it's not an anti-work book. No, I'm not curious as to... You know your presentation, your 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 interpretation of this crisis of office work. I don't think is uh, particularly original or radical. A lot of people agree. Is it simply because the dumbest, most conservative, most insecure, most pathetic people end up in HR? <laughs> no, that's that. That's a pretty you know a, a pretty mean thing to say. Uh, well, HR mean things management. and true things sometimes are connected. I, I've always, I, I've never had any association with HR people. It seems to be the worst kind of job. They're, they're trained to say no and be suspicious. Or, or let me rephrase the question. Why doesn't HR trust people when they should? You know, it's, uh, you know, the HR people are just reflecting what the managers, you know, want or need. Um, and look, I, I'm working with uh, some great HR, some talent management people down at Snapchat, at, the, at Snap, the company there. We're doing workshops with them. They're fantastic. I'm working with, uh, I did a big program with AIG, and now I'm doing a program with Bertelsmann. Some people really care about their employees and really care about developing their employees. But a lot of places, it's it's all about maximizing. Is there a hall of shame? You named some good companies, Bertelsmann, Snap, any companies you've suggested that Apple's got it wrong? Well, Apple got it wrong. They're generally pretty good, but I think that they'll, they'll fix it. 
What Look, about the, um, the other big Silicon Valley players? Uh, the the Facebook employees in particular seem up in arms, not about going to the office, but more about what they actually have to do when they're at work, whether they're working yeah. in an office or at home. Exactly. And this idea of micromanagement. Micromanagement is simply, you know, like, I tell you what to do and then I tell you how to do it. And nobody wants that. Everybody, you know, tell me what you need me to get done. Tell me what you want me to deliver and I'll deliver it. And let, let me have the autonomy to figure out what's the most efficient way to do that. People are, are, are intrinsically motivated by autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy, leave, leave me alone. Let me, do the, let me do the job my way. Mastery, let me get better and better at stuff. I want to learn. And, and purpose, tell, tell me why the hell I'm doing this. And first, why am I making these spreadsheets for you? How does this move the needle? Why does this change things at the corporation? So, so many jobs have become so small and so uh, isolated from purpose. And, and, and when people went home and they realized, you know, that their life sucked and that, that work, particularly in the Valley here, was sucking all of the energy out of them, they, they decided this is not okay. And all of the other, all of the other HR techniques and talent management techniques are all about maximizing your performance on my job, on the job for the company. That's the wrong framing. The framing, nobody wants a job, they want a life with a job in it. They want a life that's, you know, got some, some, some livelihood, some energy, some meaning, some purpose in it. And the job contributes to that. And the reason HR's got it wrong and the reason all these other people are quitting is all they want to talk about is how to make your, you work harder on my job. They're not talking about how your life can, you know, be joyful, be thriving, be interesting, be wonderful, and how the job fits in it. Americans have got the job work-life balance thing so whack, it's crazy. You look at Europe, this is not happening in Europe. People in Europe actually, you know, have uh, six-week vacation. Um, They've got lots and lots uh, of... Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, if I let you go on, you'll probably bring up Denmark. And as uh, Hillary Clinton said to uh, Bernie Sanders in one of those debates, uh, I love Denmark, but we can't be Denmark. No. Let's talk about fixes. Uh, You're the D-man. Everything you write about has the D-word in it. Um, Yeah. Designing your new work life, designing your work life, designing your life. Uh, right. Your consultancy says uh, on its front page of its website, you can design your life. Um, you're right. involved with the, the D school, the design school at Stanford. Um, you are one of the pioneers of design thinking. What exactly is it and how does it connect with work? Sure. All right. So... Think about it. What what do designers do? Um, there, you know, we're we're sitting in a lab, we're working on stuff at Apple, and then all of a sudden we invent the modern laptop. How did we do it? Well, we didn't know what it was going to look like. The guys who were doing the iPhone, they didn't know what it was going to look like, or how it was going to work. So, how do you invent something new to the world? Can't get any data about the future, right? I don't know how to do that. So, designers have evolved all these techniques, including prototyping and what we call need finding and, you know, talking to users, having empathy for needs. And very consistently, this process leads to innovation, it leads to new products, new services, new, new things. Okay. So Dave and I were sitting around in 2007 and we we're talking about our students. And I said, you know, the students are having, even though they're smart Stanford students, they, they're having trouble launching. They don't know how to find jobs. They don't know. They don't know if they're going to like their jobs. This looks like a design problem to me because the students are trying to create a new to the world future themselves in the future, but they don't know how to do it because they're using the wrong techniques. They're trying to they're trying to figure it out or engineer it out or something. You can't do that. The future is unknown. 
So it seemed obvious to us, and probably because the only thing I know how to do is design. I've been a practicing designer most all my all of my career. Um, is that you um, that you think about the future as a design problem? You build your way into it. You prototype lots of different ideas. You sneak up on your future um, by building stuff, by building experiences, by by shadowing people you want to work with or work for, by by having lots and lots of conversations, by getting curious, which is what designers are intrinsically. They're curious about the future and making stuff rather than thinking about stuff, making felt experiences in the world. And that's how you design your life. You, you design your way forward in, in, into the future. So it, all of the, all the techniques of design, getting curious, being mindful of your process, knowing when to diverge and look for lots of ideas, knowing when to converge and test one thing, prototyping, testing, all of these ideas in design just work perfectly because your your life isn't planable. Now, I mean, there's some things you can plan. Are you plan suggesting then that we all turn ourselves into a startup or we think of ourselves as a startup product or a startup company? Yeah, yes and no. Because the problem with the startup model, and particularly the startup model in Silicon Valley, is it's very mm, technology-focused. A lot of companies come to the D school and I draw the short straw and I get to do the tour. And I ask them what they're doing and they say, oh, we got this amazing technology. And I go, who's it for? And they go, I don't know. We just think it's cool. Um, the, the look what I can do companies, look what I can do. I've got this technology. So I don't, I don't know about the startup analogy, but, but to, think of your, to think of your life as an unfolding reality, as an as a emerging reality, you can't navigate into your future because you can't put the, de the destination in your GPS. There is no destination. It's just going to happen. It's going to be a combination of your intention and stuff that happens in the world, like global pandemics, and and your preparation for whatever comes comes your way, but it's a it's a pretty active and dynamic mix of pretty interesting stuff. So if you think about it that way, you know, plan plan your retirement, put money in your four hundred one k, do all the all the things you can plan. But the stuff that really matters, the stuff about relationships, the stuff about about having a job that's meaningful in a life that's that's working for you, that stuff. It, it's not planable. You, you, you design into it. You emerge into the reality of your design. You see how you like it, and then you just, just keep going. Bill, when I was reading the book, Designing Your New Work Life, I got the sense that your advice to people who are unhappy in their job is to develop their own agency within the job rather than withdraw from the job. Is that a fair generalization? Yeah, the best person, the best person to give you a new job in any organization is yourself. Reframe what you're doing, remodel the job, you know, relocate to a different part of the company. We got all sorts of strategies. And, and look, you find jobs through networks of people. You don't find jobs on job boards. That's all. That's all crap. The, you know, the hit rate on job boards is two or th two to five percent. I, I bet you've got dozens, hundreds of people in your audience who've tried to find a job by just, you know, sending resumes out to, you know, jobs that were posted on job boards that looked like they were perfect fit and they got nothing back, not even an acknowledgement of the email. That, that doesn't work. What works is you talk to people, you find, you find networks of people who know about jobs, you get referred into jobs. That's how you find great jobs. And, and so where's your biggest network? Well, right where you work, right? If you work at Apple, 60,000, 70,000 employees. You work at Google, they got 100,000 employees. There's a thousand jobs inside Google, a thousand jobs inside right where you work that might be a better fit for you as you grow and expand and you kind of outgrow one job and grow into something new. 
So we say, you know, set the bar, our whole thing is set the bar low, try lots of experiments. If it doesn't work out where you are, then, then think about moving. But what's happening right now is people are just frustrated with where they are and they're not even willing to give their, their company a second shot. They just want to leave because for years and years and years, they were micromanaged, disrespected, not trusted and treated like a kid. So, you know, we should have seen this coming. The, the data's never, the data's been consistently bad for the last 10 years. And, and in Silicon Valley, particularly, the work-life balance is out of control Bill, uh, all the time. Yeah, and the Silicon Valley piece is particularly interesting. We've had so many shows recently about the internet and its dark side. We had uh, earlier this week, Pamela Paul, the uh, editor of the New York Times book review on. She has a new book, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet. Yeah. Is it any coincidence that this pandemic of unhappiness at work is happening at a time where we are more and more dependent on the internet because of the pandemic and the Zoom culture, as well as the digital revolution fundamentally changing everything about our lives? Is that coincidental or are they connected? I think they're deeply connected. I mean, let me, let me zoom back to my students. You know, students at Stanford, undergraduate and undergraduates. This is the loneliest generation we've ever educated. This is the most you know, um, anxious generation. I think the stats are something like 50, 60% of the kids are in some kind of anti-anxiety medication or anti-depression medication. It's the highest suicide rate we've ever had. And why? It's the smartphone and the digital isolation and social media and constantly comparing yourself to others. Um, there's this phenomenon they call together, together alone. You ever seen, you know, you, you get six. Well, yeah, uh, Sherry Turkle, um, yeah. uh, wrote the book about it. She has a new, you know, she's been you on my show many times. The together, they're having dinner. They're all on their smartphone talking to somebody who's not at the table. It's crazy. Right. And then you take that into the work environment with um, always on, you know, apps like Slack and all these other digital works, work spaces that you're in and you never have a break and you're constantly under, under pressure. And yeah, the digital this digital lifestyle is not human. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not actually social. It's pretty. It's pretty isolating, and so that's making work even uh, even more of a of a pressure cooker. And you know how many? I mean, the one downside of the pandemic is a lot of people are saying, "Hey, I can't tell the difference between work and work and being home because I'm home all the time. I'm working where I'm where I'm living, where I'm eating. Um, you got to set up some rituals of you know starting and stopping." during the day but um you know people people can't turn off their phones how does this we, we do a thing in your design thinking or broadly in intellectual terms talks about empathy and ideation and prototyping and testing um how, how does in a way it's treating us perhaps as if we're a little bit of an algorithm how does design thinking help us confront this crisis of digital, the fact that it's isolating, that it's making yeah. us anxious, that yeah, the digital generation extent. is the therapy generation. Well, to some extent, you know, really efficient design thinking processes have developed really addictive apps because they've zoomed in on, you know, on, on certain human needs to be connected and, and to be stimulated. So there's a downside to it as well. But look, the way, easiest way to explain design thinking is it seems like you have lots and lots of ideas, you're going to find a good one. And if you tie those ideas to some human need, some human, it used to be called human centered design. How, 
how can we find something that people really need or want that would make their lives either easier or their jobs more effective, more efficient. So if you have lots of ideas, you tie it to needs, that's design thinking. Now, you know, does, has that also generated, you know, apps that are all about, you know, attention and, and addicting you to, you know, the attention economy? Yes. And that's a negative. And so I think we're now in a place where we're realizing just, just maximizing it for individuals isn't enough. You've got to think about, you know, societies, you've got to think about groups, you've got to think about families, you've got to zoom back and say, it's not just enough to find something somebody needs or wants. We got to look at the social implications of it as well, and the ethical implications of it as well. Exactly. I mean, what are you doing at Stanford, uh, Bill? You're a longtime teacher there. We had uh, Mehran Sahami. I'm sure you know oh, yeah. him, one of the top engineering professors, with a couple of other Stanford professors, Rob Reich. They've written this book, Confronting Big Tech. How are you at the design school getting students not only to design their own lives, but to design them in a more ethical, selfless way. How, yeah. are you, how are you getting the kids at Stanford to think out of themselves rather than into themselves? Well, first, a big shout out from Aram. He teaches the absolutely best computer science class, interact computer science class. Yeah, and I think everyone takes it. Some astonishing statistic. Like yeah, no, he's amazing. of people he's at Stanford amazing. end up taking that class. He makes what could be a really boring intro class to a really boring subject you know, fantastic. He's an amazing instructor. Um, what we're doing at the, at, at the design program in the D school is first of all, you know, uh, with all sorts of disruptions, not just the pandemic, we had the, the George Floyd murder and the, and the sort of race, you know, realizing that, you know, racial justice in America is a long way from perfect and, and protests, you know, at least virtual protests. I'm sure if we'd, if we'd been on campus during that time, the students would have shut the university down. So one thing we've done is a, a very comprehensive, you know, what I would say is a, sort of an equity uh, rubric across all of our classes to make sure that we have inclusive voices, that we're not necessarily not only white centered, that we have, you know, a sense that um, design has to be not simply for the privileged class, but for everybody. And so we've also modified our- Even our, if Stanford our, is the ultimate bastion of the, the new privileged class in America for better or worse. Well, yes, and yes, and we have you know twenty percent of the students are uh, first gen to go to college, and we got a reasonably good representation of underrepresented minorities. I mean, we could do a hell of a lot better, and we could do better on the faculty as well. But I've replaced you know two thirds of my lecturers when I was you know executive director with um, women, people of color, and other representations. My lab is highly diverse at Stanford, um, so we're really paying attention to that stuff. And, and we're making sure that when we teach the students how to do this, that empathy isn't just, hey, I'm going to go into your community and tell you what you need. That's not it at all. You've got to co-create with the people in communities. You've got to listen to the wisdom of the communities that we're, that we're working with. And you, have to, and you have to consider the ethical implications. Now, two of my students from a while back, um, Adam Bowen and uh, James Monsees, were the two guys who invented Juul. And uh, fantastic, super good guys. And they were really trying hard to figure out an alternative to smoking as a harm reduction technique. And yeah, we did a show on them, actually. We did a because there's a book about them. Yeah, they kind of took their eye off the ball and ended up in a, in a bad situation. Well, so, yeah, but a lot of people at Stanford, I mean, a lot of your, a lot of the students at, at Stanford have taken their, the, their, their, their eyes off the ball. We did a show on Peter Thiel uh, recently. 
someone who's taken their eye off the ball <laughs> radically. So, so, uh, but, I, I, but sorry, the, go the on. The question was, what are we doing at Stanford to get the students? One, we're teaching ethics in every class. Two, we're looking at diversity inclusion, you know, and where, where, our, where our curriculum is coming from and what, how, how, are, we, how are we including uh, uh, alternative voices and other voices in the design community. And three, we're doing, you know, as much as we can to, you know, balance the, balance the faculty and to admit students that represent you know, a much broader range. And certainly in our graduate program where we control the students that we admit, we're looking for a much more diverse range of students. Because I think once you, you know, just look, it, it would make sense also that better design is gonna come from a team that has more ideas in it and more ideas come from diverse people, radical collaboration, that's one of our mindsets. So we wanna include every community when we're designing because that'll just make a better design and the issue of ethics matters you, you've got to decide well, that, uh, yeah and that kind of goes without saying uh bill um how much have we lost the gen zers and the millennials uh, another headline when it comes to work from forbes why, why millennials and gen zers are leading the great resignation trend and there was a really creepy piece in the times this week about why <laughs> 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds. There's an element of, I don't know, the show trial or the, the rope spear in the, in the 23-year-olds. What's gone wrong with this generation? Why are they the ones who are most unhappy about working? Have they been promised too much? I don't know if that's it. I mean, one of the reasons I think, um, you know, most of the, the generation you're talking about, um, remember... Remember, go back to the, you know, to the big, um, you know, the financial collapse in 2008, 2009, right? So if you were the generation, you know, 20 years later, you know, if you were 15 or 16 at that time, then you came to Stanford, you know, in 2015, let's say. So from 2015 on, you were a generation of kids who went through a major crisis where you didn't know what was going on because you were a kid. But your folks were in the other room talking about losing their job or, you know, or losing their 401k or whatever. So they grew up in a, with a sense of financial instability. Then they've also been, been bombarded with the story that they'll be the quote, first generation that does not exceed you know, financially their, their parents. None of which I think is true, but that's, the, that's, the, that's what's in the popular press. So, they, so they're one, they're, they're, they're um, actually pretty, they're, although they're super socially liberal, they're financially quite cons conservative. You've heard of the FIRE movement, you know, um, uh, retire early, you know, uh, fin financial independence, retire early. Um, these are kids that are, they don't need the job and they know that the company isn't going to be loyal to them. They saw their dad get laid off. They saw their mom get laid off in, in the recession. So, they, you know, they, they have no sense that companies give a crap about them one way or another other than for what they produce. So they think about themselves as project-based workers. They work on a project. When the project's done, they're just as likely to quit and go travel for a few months. By the way, also during the pandemic, so we should so, so, so really cards. these are the people we should look up to. They're they may not have read designing your new work life, but they are actually acting on design they principles. Are. They're, they're very self self actualized. They're 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 the reason the older generation is worried about them is they don't you know like I I, I a kid who was um you know got a job at a big consulting firm you know could have been McKinsey could have been Bain could have been you know PCG any one of those big consulting firms. And about four years in on the fast track, it was doing really well. He quit. And the partner said, why did you quit? You were on the fast track. You could have been me in 10 years. He goes, last thing in the world I want to be is you. Your life sucks. That's what my kids say to me, right? I bet your kids say the same to you. You work all the time. You have no fun. 
you got lots of money and no, no, and, and you never travel, you never do anything interesting. And all you talk about is work. They don't aspire to that. And they're not interested in the merit badges, you know, oh, uh, analyst one, analyst two, senior analyst, junior partner, partner. They don't care. Those are all games and they don't want to play them. Bill, as uh, today, another headline, uh, labor unions are pushing the White House to add a worker protection to Biden's COVID vaccine mandate. We're debating the role of unions and, and labor. Um, we've had a lot of shows about that. I had Sarah Jaffe on the show. She's written uh -huh. a wonderful book called Work Will Never Love You Back, which I think in some ways goes against some of your ideas, although in some ways it's you're on the same page as Sarah. I had the labor activist Sarah Horowitz also on the show talking about why we still need trade unions. Your book, I mean, it's not a political book, Designing Your New Work Life, but you don't talk about, you know, you have the co-creation word and the ideate word, which are, which are part of this design ideology, but, mm -hmm. but there's not much political there. Is another piece of Designing Your New Work Life adding um, not so much collaboration, but a more traditional kind of worker solidarity, joining unions, whether they're traditional unions or the new kind of unions of our precarious economy. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. And we never used to talk about unions in Silicon Valley. And now you've got people trying to unionize at Amazon and at Google and other places. Right. And, and what, what I think is happening is that same generation of workers, they're getting paid. OK, that's not the problem. The problem is they got no voice at the office. Google wants to work for you know the military and everybody says no and then they do it anyway or Google says we're not going to censor anything then they produce a censored you know um, uh, or they talk about making a censored search engine for China um, the, you know the the sort of ethical lapses at Facebook that have been revealed with all the new um, uh, leaked documents so you know the workers are saying hey you, you expect me to be here and do a good job but i want some voice in the way this place is run i want to make sure we're not doing unethical things in china or for for you know are addicting kids to social media or ignoring um you know hate speech on our platform so i think you're seeing uh, again empowered workers saying wait a minute if we all got together we're actually the power here we're you know everybody talks about oh, the intellect you know the, the intellectual capital walks out the door every day yeah, they do. Every day they walk out and some of them aren't coming back. So you better start paying attention to them. And although we're not, you know, we're not political, I would lean towards the size of work. You know, if workers don't get together and organize somehow, whether that's the old fashioned unions, which are probably desperately needed for factory work you know, factory work at, at, at Amazon, it's just factory work. You're just putting you know, boxes on shelves and moving things around. And, and if you think Jeff Bezos gives a crap about your working environment, um, just read what he says. I don't think that's true. So if the workers want to get together and exert their power, um, it's worked in the past. You know, uh, I mean, look, workers went workers went out into the streets and fought really hard for unions in the 20s, 20s and 30s, because, you know, it was all piecework back in those days. You only got paid for how much you work. There's no benefits, no nothing. So we got all those things installed. And then what comes along is this new sharing economy. What, what, what is being paid only when you give a ride as an Uber driver? That's yeah, it's the ultimate abuse of language. Sharing, of yeah. course, yeah, all you're doing sharing. is sharing your labor with the owners of Uber or right. and and sharing your all the money your and you're gas. being paid less than the minimum wage. Yeah, your car and your gas and only getting paid when you work. That's called piecework. That's what we unionized to, you know, to stop 
happening. And so, you know, yes, th this isn't the book author speaking or, or you know, I'm not representing me and Dave. Just personally, I've been watching this sort of deconstruction of work. Uh, you know, like if you're Postmates or you know, Groupon or Uber or any of these things, you know, any of these things where you only get paid when you work and, you, and you're putting your assets, your car, your gas, your time, your, your bicycle, whatever, you know, uh, in the mix. All that is to leverage the company's profits, not you. You're being, you're being, you're being used to create this thing. You know what? Good, good fighting Remember, book, Bill. Finally, yeah. finally, um, as you say, uh, you can't argue with this. We can't know the future, uh, but we can know the past. And we've had a lot of shows about thinking back pre-industrially. We had the uh, best-selling author Sebastian Junger on the show. He has a new book out called Freedom, which is an attempt to go back before industrial society. I also had the anthropologist James Sussman on the show uh, earlier this year. Actually, it may have been late last year. And he has a new book out, Work, which attempts to learn from pre-industrial society, particularly the tribal societies of Africa. What can anthropologists like Sussman uh, tell us, teach us about work um, which might help in in people trying to design their own work lives in the early part of the 21st century. Well, you know, every every question has an embedded you know value system in it. So what the the, the notion of work, this idea of work, you go to the work in the factory, you go to work in the office. This is very modern. This was not the case in 1850 America. Everybody worked on a farm, and there were no jobs. It was just your farm, and you did what you needed to do. To you know plant stuff or milk the cows or whatever. So I go looking at these uh, sort of re anthropological reviews of the history of work is really all about the history of the formation of capitalism and other forms of organizing, you know, social and political, you know, capital. So what, what we're in right now is this, you know, Henry Ford invented the the assembly line before that it cost a hundred million hundred thousand dollars to build a car and after that you could buy a car for you know four hundred dollars it it's very much related to the capitalist system and the way in which capital is formed and deployed so i think looking at, historically looking back it's fa it's fascinating because it doesn't have to end up where we, we've ended up there's lots of other ways we can organize work to be sustainable joyful and 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 again supporting the life we want to have work is just a piece of life life is what we're designing and when you when you start when you when you ignore that feature you get a whole bunch of people who want to quit 20 million people quit and 4 million people evidently have left the job market completely they've just left it since the beginning of the year they don't plan to come back it's astonishing well maybe they need to read your new book i definitely think actually they need to Read your book, perhaps well, on a Friday, you. like <laughs> today. Designing Your New Work Life by uh, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans is a good start to allow us to retrieve agency over our own work lives and push back. And uh, as the subtitle says, how, how we can thrive and change and indeed find happiness and a new freedom at work. Congratulations on the book, Bill. Lovely to talk to you. Uh, um, you're talking to me from San Francisco. Actually, we're not too far away on this lovely day. But uh, in addition to your new book, what else should people be 
reading? You can even read outside in San Francisco, sit in a park. What other can, books would you suggest, Bill? You can absolutely read outside or in any of the amazing, you know, uh, coffee shops around. The, we got a Phil's down the street on Minnesota. From You're here. on Dog um, Patch, yeah? Yeah, in the Dog Patch. Yeah, I just finished um, Ruth Ozeki's book, The Book of Form and Emptiness, a novel. Um, it's it's kind of crazy. I'm not sure I really understood it, but I really enjoyed it. And then um, this the guy, uh, Anthony, um, I think it's Dorr is his last name, uh, had a, uh, who, who wrote a just wrote Cloud Cuckoo Land, uh, and that one is I've not been able to get through. But he had a beautiful book, a beautiful set of short stories I would highly recommend called The Shell Collector Stories. Um, so Anthony Drawer and Ruth Ozeki would be my two um, go-to reads if you're looking for the Ozeki novels, probably 500 pages, and it's crazy. Um, the short stories are short. Well, San Francisco is a good place to read a 500-page novel, which you don't understand. Um, B Bill <laughs> Burnett, uh, the author of uh, Designing Your New Work Life. It's really lovely to have you on the show on this Friday. You've brightened up my Friday. I think you've brightened up all our Fridays. You've offered hope. Keep designing, Bill. Keep forcing us to rethink uh, our, not only our work lives, but our actual lives. You're doing a great job down there uh, at Stanford. Uh, and I'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.